Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. As you know, Ontario Premier Doug Ford announced Toronto City Council would be slashed from 45 to 27 seats. I spoke with Joe Warmington, columnist for the Toronto Sun, and Matty DiMuccio, syndicated columnist and president of the York Region Taxpayers Coalition, about that. As the Canadian border issue continues to generate strong public view and confrontation between members of Parliament, the question is, why exactly are people on the move now? Why are millions of people seeking out Western nations as their destinations? Canadians will vote for him as Prime Minister on the 21st of October, 2019. But according to polling, many, maybe most Canadians, aren't familiar with him. He is Andrew Scheer, the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. I spoke with Mr. Scheer about that very fact. Joe Warmington writes tremendous columns for the Toronto Sun. He uh, has his finger quite, well, I don't know if literally, but as literally as possible on the pulse of Toronto. And uh, Matty DiMuccio is uh, with us as well. And Matty is a former Newmarket, Ontario councillor, syndicated columnist, and president of the York Region Taxpayers Coalition. Matty, good to talk to you. It's been a while. It has. How are you, Roy? Thanks for having me on the show. Well, uh, how I am is a long story, so we won't get into that. <laughs> I'm, just a guy, I'm just a guy who decided not to step on his dog on Wednesday night and instead learned to fly on the stairs. So, Sounds like you're having a good time. Well, it does. <laughs> yeah, I'm enjoying, the, uh, I'm enjoying the recuperation. Joe, how are you doing? I'm doing better than you, I guess, Roy. I'm glad you're okay, and I missed you on our scheduled uh, visit there. I think it was on Thursday. Yeah, we were supposed and to be on the air together. It's just good to hear you. You sound good anyway. I hope that you heal up fast. Thank you, my friend. So let me ask you both, and let me start with you, Maddie. What's your reaction, first of all, to the announcement, and then to the timing of the announcement by the Premier? Well, I think that most of us, including Joe, who's my call, you know, my panel colleague, uh, is, is shocked, or at least you know, we, we weren't expecting something like that. Um, so, but, you know, I, I want to talk about the reduction of council seats in Toronto, but before I do that, Royce, if you could just allow me, just give me the liberty, just a couple minutes, because the focus has been on the cut in council seats in Toronto, but it's the issue of cance- canceling the regional chair elections that, in my opinion, are more disastrous, and if I can just touch on that. Sure, go ahead, uh, Matty. Toronto residents might not understand the impacts of that issue because they don't have second-tier municipal government like we do in the rest of the GTA. So I'm just going to quickly explain to your listeners what second-tier governments look like. So second-tier governments like York and Peel, uh, we have a group of municipalities whose mayors and regional councillors come together every month in their own council chambers, and they vote on separate massive budgets apart from the local municipalities. So in York, for example, that budget was $5.2 billion for 2018. So that's what a second-tier government looks like, and that's what Toronto was before it became amalgamated years ago. Essentially, the chair of these councillors, of these councils, uh, is a mayor. So Doug Ford's announcement yesterday revoked the right for voters to elect that chair and reverted it back to the old model of having them appointed instead. Now, can you imagine the public outcry that would take place if Doug Ford announced that the mayor of Toronto would be an appointed position from now on instead of elected by the people. But that's really what he's doing to, to the people of York Region and Peel Region and Niagara Region, which, which population-wise affects more people than those of the city of the Toronto. And I challenge any single pundit or politician out there to defend how that is right. Okay, Joe. I, I have a, yeah, uh, Maddie, it's good to be with you. And, uh, Likewise, uh, if you don't mind, you don't mind me asking. I, I mean, my understanding is that the appointment has to be of an elected person, though, from you know, from the regional council. So there'd be somebody like here in, you know, the one in uh, Peel, there's Brampton, there's Caledon, there's Mississauga, and there's councillors and mayors on it. So the appointment it, wouldn't be Roy Green uh, on there, it would be somebody elected. Am I wrong? You're absolutely, yes. Yeah. So you're absolutely so, so, correct. So, so right the off the bat, yep. your, premise, you know, hang on, your premise is wrong, because what you're saying is that, it's an appointment when it's an elected person. The regional part of the government is to tackle things like York Region, where you're from, and, you know, you wanted to run provincially and federally and things like that. 
but it's the it's the York Regional Police, things issues like that that cover the region, Peel Regional Police, and those are the kinds of things that are regional that they need to talk about, and that's why you've got the the people from the different places. So when you have just to, just to tell the other side of it, when you have another elected person. You've got somebody like a Stephen Del Duca running up in it was at New York, and you've got Patrick Brown that wanted to run in Peel, when they're really not part of these communities at all. In fact, they're outsiders with lots of donors and lots of power and lots of name recognition. Well, actually, Joe, in, I'm gonna, I'm they, just, become, Joe. they become bigger than the mayors. Like in, in Mississauga here and in Brampton, we've got two very strong mayors that are good mayors, Linda Jeffrey in Brampton and Bonnie Crombie in Mississauga. And to us as, you know, and obviously Frank Scarpetti and different people like that, they, you know, the mayor is the supreme uh, person. And to have somebody above them, that's the, the rationale, uh, you know, well, Joe, eliminating I, that idea. Can, yeah, no, but Joe, if I can just challenge you on what you just said. First of all, yes, you're right, that the chair has to be appointed uh, the, the, by, the, by the actual mayors and regional councillors that sit on that on that council and it has to be a mayor of one of those regions people like steve del duca or uh, i think mario rocco was was running those are people that uh that actually live in the in the actual uh communities okay so first of all the regional governments require the lion's share of our property taxes and the past process of appointing the chair of the regional councillor has made regional governments the least accountable. So York Region's government, for example, has spent its way into a $2.7 billion debt. And the people who are footing that bill, the taxpayers who live here, don't get a say in how that massive problem could be fixed anymore. So a chair who is elected, to counter Joe, a chair who is elected on issues regional across, you know, across all these boundaries, that chair who is elected on issues is accountable to the people. A chair who's appointed is accountable to nobody other than those nine or dozen or so uh, mayors that he reports to. Hit up Apple Podcasts or Google Play and subscribe to the Roy Green Show podcast. The Roy you want when you want it. Joe Warmington and Matty DiMuccio, who's a syndicated columnist and president of the York Region Taxpayers Coalition. Joe, we can get back at the regional issue briefly, but we only have a relatively short period of time, so I want to talk about Toronto as well. So go ahead, please. I mean, obviously it was a brilliant move by Premier Ford. He promised to do this kind of thing, and it needed to be done. Look, they didn't have a referendum to put it up to 47. They didn't have a referendum to take the police and throw policing away, not allowed to talk to anybody, not allowed to, you know, question anybody. And look at the city this year. It's just a disaster. And so these guys have screwed it up. I mean, they're not very good. And Premier Ford knows that. He was elected with a landslide to come in and fix it. And so I think this is terrific. And I think most people do out there, too. Enough of these councillors running around, uh, you know, with their own agendas, they're forgetting about the taxpayers. 25 are going to get to work. Now, just before Maddie takes it, and, and you know, the, the left is upset because it takes away their balance of, you know, the extra power they have because of all the downtown riding. And this kind of evens it out a little bit, and we're going to get some serious adults on council. And in terms of people saying it's not democratic, they still can run for it. They just have to run for less seats. And so, you know, it was the right move by the premier. He and the previous, uh, you know, Mayor Rob Ford always talked about doing this, and I'm glad they're doing it. Matty, uh, one more thought from you. Then I have to ask you about the Toronto Council itself. And uh, one of the questions I have, is there anything significant about the number 27 councillors, or is that just a number? Well, you know, before, before I answer that, I, you know, I'm a conservative because Joe, Joe mentioned that. Um, as Joe knows, I'm a conservative. I've written many Toronto Sun columns on bloated government, and certainly um, while, I, while I don't disagree that, that with Ford's intentions, I disagree with, with he, how he's executing them. And I think most conservatives, deep down in their hearts, if they reach you know, deeply enough, would probably agree with me. We don't want, uh, you, you know, we, we don't disagree sometimes with the intentions. We all agree with it. But democracy is messy. It's, it's imperfect. Uh, and the larger the population, the more chaotic Okay, I, I, I get I get where we're going, Maddie. I get where I get where we were and where right. we're going, but I want to talk about what the impact is on the city of Toronto. It's Canada's largest city, and right. Joe, you're saying this is going to make it a better situation, more streamlined. There'll be less well, there, less complaining there's, 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 and less less stretching out of issues. The decisions will be made. 
not very good. I mean, they've taken away King Street, and they, there's, you know, the agenda is this leftist agenda controls City Hall and has for many years. So, you know, I can't see anything but positive where you've got serious people sitting around above your neighborhood, 25, the same as you've got with the federal and the provincial. And, you know, I'm talking about 25 councillors. Yeah, I hear you. And, yeah. and they get to work on it instead of all this, uh, you know, kind of stuff where they're taking it into a direction where, you know, it's la-la land, lawlessness and, and craziness. And we talk about it on your show all the time. And, you know, Maddie herself, you know, she ran into this kind of autocratic stuff when she wanted Absolutely. to run. There were people doing things behind the scenes without uh, democratic. You, when you hear mayors talking about an elected premier and calling him a dictator, you know... It is that mm-hmm. Antifa style, you know, coming at this guy who wants to do change. Anybody who does change, people go crazy about it. Joe, how Nothing much? How, how much do you think? Joe, how much do you think has to do with the timing? Well, the timing is an interesting thing because if he's done it for the next time, he may not be premier next time. And so, you know, I think that he had to do it this way. I think he probably should have announced it the, the first day that he took office. That might have helped a little bit. But, you know, again, this is politics. And people say, yeah, he's just playing politics. You're damn right he is. Matty, can, can the, is the city going to, I, I, obviously the city is going to function because ultimately there are people who will make it function and cities often function uh, despite, well. despite councils. But how do you see the city functioning with 27 councillors as opposed to uh, 40, uh, 27 instead of 45 or 48? Well, I see a lot of uh, bureaucratic bloat in the future because, uh, you know, the argument is that, uh, as, as I understand it, uh, Toronto has 25 MPs, 25 MPPs, and now they just need 25 uh, municipal council members, too. So now you're creating this massive administration bloat because now you're holding uh, bureaucrats that are, not, uh, 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 that are not elected. You're holding them accountable, and, and they're not elected. So... You know, I get I get Joe's point. He's absolutely right. Uh, you know, I've been on council, but, you know, you, these guys love to hear themselves talk, and they just go on and on and on. But if the argument is too much debate, uh, you know, drags and, and halts projects, then put, put a criteria that councillors can decide by certain time frames. And if the argument yeah. is that representatives can't decide on costs, then put stipulations and agreements on contractors that they're obliged to go on. My point is, is that... Um, you know, I haven't really heard a single logical argument that making it smaller is actually going to save money. I, I don't see that. So, Joe, um, Joe, the number that's quoted and you wrote about was $25 million is going to be saved right away or in the Yeah, I mean, I don't know uh, what, what the number will really be, and we'll have to wait and see. Maybe it'll be like Maddie says, it'll end up being more. But, you know, I don't know. But I, I can sort of imagine that I'd rather have more people instead of a counselor's office yeah. servicing actual people. Guys, let me get a, let me just get somebody let me just get somebody on the air who's just calling in from Winnipeg listening to this. Al is in Winnipeg. We have little time, Al. You think it's a positive move. Why? I can make it fairly quick. These guys are cut back to twenty seven. Their constituencies are going to get exponentially larger, right? Is it just possible that they might have to spend more time now being functional as opposed to political or social activists? Interesting point. I think, Joe, that's the point you made. I remember when I worked in the city of Hamilton exclusively on the air, and the council here was around, I think, around 15 councillors at the time, and they had their own fiefdoms, and it became one of the most frustrating things to deal with these people because they looked after their ward boundaries and very little else, and there was almost impossible to get any consensus out of them. That's a good point. I mean, look, they don't have a referendum or they don't get consensus when they put one of those injection sites right in a neighborhood. People paid a million dollars for a house, and there's heroin yeah. addicts running yeah. around all the whole place. So, you know, like they, they're very selective, Roy, about what they want, you know, what they call democratic and what they don't call democratic. Uh, Premier Ford has done nothing wrong. Okay. He's done what he said. Got to go. Joe, thank, thank you, you so much. I really appreciate you coming on. Joe Warmington and Matty DiMuccio. Matty, thank you so much. Good talking to you thank again. You, Roy. All Thanks. the best to you both. The Roy Green Show Podcast. Ready and waiting for you anywhere, anytime. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Google Play today. I find it really interesting that the uh, liberal party within has issues. And there's a book that's in its third printing in the province of Quebec. The title of it is Un Selfie avec Justin Trudeau. And the book is by senior liberal party member and former Stéphane Dion advisor, Jocelyn Coulon. And Monsieur Coulon was um, an advisor in uh, while Dion was the foreign affairs minister of Canada. 
And uh, the word is that uh, Justin Trudeau and his gang have absolutely no interest whatsoever in foreign relations, have no idea what's going on, couldn't care less. And so, of course, we're now seeing that Canada's influence is diminishing globally. And joining us on the program to speak to some of this, maybe all of it, maybe more than I've mentioned, but because he knows more than I do, is Dan McTague, who for 18 years was a Liberal Party member of Parliament, started with uh, with Jean Chrétien, one of the uh, one of the former MPs who I think is not exactly in the cheering section for the current Prime Minister of Canada. How how are you, Dan? I'm fine. And uh, yes, my lungs are a little exhausted with the cheering. <laughs> not. <laughs> He's also a senior analyst for GasBuddy.com, and we talked to Dan about issues of uh, oil and gasoline and our natural resources and getting them to market. So let me just start with this. Dan, what do you make of, this is the issue that is is bedeviling so many people, and it is Justin Trudeau's national carbon tax. He insists this is going to happen. He will have his pan-Canadian carbon tax, even though it appears to be unraveling around him. Saskatchewan is is taking him to court. The uh, province of Ontario is joining Saskatchewan. When, when, when Jason Kenney wins in Alberta, assuming that he does, he will fall in line with Alberta, and with, or at least with, uh, with, with Ontario, mm-hmm. and, uh, and with, uh, what's the other province? Saskatchewan, right? Saskatchewan, Manitoba. Uh, so, we'll eventually, think yeah, about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, it looks like this this whole dream of his, or this plan of his, is starting to really significantly unravel, which he's not willing to accept. What do you make of the carbon tax to begin with? And then let's move on to some other issues. Well, I think a lot of people are very much uh, against the idea of a carbon tax. Many people talk about its need, its necessity, uh, but don't quite have all the facts as to why. We need to uh, punish people monetarily. There are, of course, other approaches which would be less uh, impactful on everyone's bottom line. And I think the Ontario government's uh, election tapped into that sentiment uh, and reflected very clearly on the fact that 72% of Canadians, which is, last time I checked, a pretty significant number of people, uh, would be opposed to uh, any type of carbon tax. Uh, And that doesn't mean that they accept or deny uh, the idea of climate change and all the politics uh, that goes with it. What they're act- in fact saying is that these are costs that ought not to be borne by Canadians, especially in some provinces where you say, well, what emissions do you have in Prince Edward Island? What emissions do you have in Nova Scotia? Uh, or where you have real carbon sinks in provinces like British Columbia, where you know just the number of trees there alone and across the country would certainly not warrant um, putting on uh, any type of taxation on emissions, which, you know, while at the beginning may sound like, oh, the business will pay for this, is in fact, as we see here in Ontario, as you see in British Columbia, uh, you know, 4.6 cents a litre in Ontario, uh, 4.8 cents a litre in Quebec, and I'm not doing the diesel because it's much higher. Uh, Alberta, of course, with the GST, uh, 7.07, and of course, uh, British Columbia, the highest, at just over 8, going to 8.5 or 9 by uh, within about uh, the next eight or nine months. Mm -hmm. So I think, generally speaking, the public is not accepting this, and provinces that are walking away from it, notably Ontario, are more than just saying they don't approve of the project. And I think uh, the Environment Minister here, Rod Phillips, made a very, very strong and very direct but very respectful uh, counterpoint to uh, the Minister of the Environment, who continues to uh, suggest that somehow the sky is falling and this is bad for our kids, you know, not mentioning any of this, of course, uh, I think you made it very clear there's other ways of pursuing this. One of them is not to harm uh, the bottom line and pocketbook issues for consumers, which I think are certainly coming into focus. And uh, I think over the next couple of months, we're likely to see a shift uh, from who wears this politically. That would be the provinces right back to the federal government just in time for the federal election in October of 2019. What's the most significant issue or one of the most significant issues that you might have with Justin Trudeau and his stewardship of the Liberal Party, and uh, by extension, of course, the Government of Canada, and other members of the Liberal Party of Canada may have with this Prime Minister, because once the word starts to leak out that there's some real unhappiness within the ranks, once we get it, it's already grown. It's metastasized. Yeah, I think uh, the public has probably become somewhat uh, uh, unimpressed with uh, very little action and usually just talk about... uh, uh, issues that may be far and away from the minds of most uh, individuals uh, pushing, you know, ideas 
that may very well do well in a particular election at a given time. I think, you know, infusing all debates or all discussions revolving around the issue of gender, I, I think, is uh, is getting a little tawdry for many people, even those who uh, at first glance would say this is a wonderful thing. You know, it's not 2015 anymore, it's 2018, and there are far more serious problems uh, that are confronting the country. Uh, what I think bothers many people, though, is the willingness to, at first, offer sympathetic, uh, mollifying words like social license in order to obtain uh, higher taxes for people, in order to get uh, things like our oil pipeline opened up so that we can get access to world markets so we can improve uh, the standard of living for Canadians, so we can turn around the economic uh, doldrums that we find ourselves in. And yet, uh, this is a Prime Minister who simply doesn't get it. I think for a lot of people, this is where, uh, you know, as, as we said earlier, and we've talked about this, it's not a, it's an unserious mind given to uh, things like socks, uh, things like sobbing and uh, selfies. Uh, so for a lot of people, and I hear this on the street from many who will come up to me, uh, knowing, of course, my, my background as a 18-year Liberal veteran of the House of Commons, um, this is not the kind of behavior we expect of our Prime Minister, and we find his uh, his his conduct unbecoming, regardless of the recent uh, allegations uh, and uh, clear, uh, you know, misdeeds over what had happened 18 years ago in Creston. Where does that all fit in? I think it fits into the concerns that people have about if you're going to set the bar that high, you better be in a position to meet it. You better be able to clear it. Uh, it's uh, it, for many people, it's coming down to a question of him saying, you know. Uh, do as I say, not as I do. Um, and I would be concerned that this uh, this issue, uh, he has put everything he's got into it, and now he appears to be uh, one of those uh, quite willing to, prov- to to try not to fall on his own sword. Uh, it's clear that he's, uh, he's punished others within the caucus. Uh, I think here of uh, two former members of uh, the caucus and excoriated others uh, for allegations. Um, here, of course, uh, we had uh, what I consider to be a rather mealy-mouthed uh, approach to what had happened. Uh, it took the victim in this case to come forward, not to want to be involved, but to actually, uh, you know, confirm that this, in fact, had taken place. Um, I think it's, a, you know, perhaps the tip of the iceberg and a, and a, and a sign of much bigger problems uh, with the conduct of this Prime Minister, both in the past and currently. There are certainly some, and I, I hesitate to ever use the word rumors, but there are Interest. I've been. I've been. I don't want to go there, but I've been told that there are rumors of stories that may yet unfold, and that's. I don't want to be unfair to him because that's like pointing the the finger at him for something he may not have done, or has not done, hasn't been uh, even been accused of doing. But you just you, the, the the wind seems to just get a little stronger all, by the day, Dan. Well, you know, that will come forward, I guess. If there is something out there, I'm sure it will make its way out. Uh, in the meantime, I think we have to look at uh, what has happened up to now. And uh, frankly, I think it's, uh, it's it's largely disappointing. Yeah. Uh, for those of us who've looked at this in the past, uh, this is not leadership. This is the absence of leadership. And I think uh, Canadians are paying a little closer attention. And if not, they ought to. The Roy Green Show podcast is the only podcast hosted by Roy Green. Which makes sense. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or Google Play. But a very serious issue, and that is that Mr. Trudeau decided, uh, as you well know, to not provide any summer job program funding for any organization, religious or otherwise, that didn't see the issue of abortion through his eyes and his views. They, wouldn't get, they weren't going to get any, any funding. This had been going on for years, and they received these, these organizations. Did tremendous good, but this prime minister said, no, we didn't hire an autocrat, particularly not a particularly bright one, if I may say. Go ahead, Dan. <laughs> I'm done. Yeah, well, <laughs> that aside, I think it's, uh, it, it, you know, th- what has happened here is that the Liberal Party has given uh, away or given itself away to the notion that there can be no diversity of thought. You can't have a conscience other than what they believe to be correct. And uh, that wasn't the Liberal Party I joined. We were an eclectic variety of people, center-left, center-right, right across the spectrum, big tent party, one of the reasons we were very successful politically. But uh, this diktat, which has come from the uh, from Mr. Trudeau himself, uh, why it has happened is a question he may want to ask of himself, because it certainly doesn't square with his behavior. 
leaves one with the impression that uh, it's a fellow that really can't handle uh, any opposition, uh, any type of uh, uh, differences of opinion, uh, anyone who might stand up and challenge him. I note even some of his most ardent cheerleaders are no longer allowed to speak publicly or openly. I won't mention them because I think it would be unfair to them, but uh, they were uh, some of the biggest acolytes of his uh, of his leadership and uh, haven't heard a word from them as members of Parliament. There they sit behind uh, the Prime Minister and are told what to do, what to say, you know, given their media lines, told when they can speak, told when they can't speak. People have voted for really voting machines and uh, automatons who can't articulate their own points of view, and if they do, they could be either punished severely or perhaps uh, not allowed to run from the party again, which under circumstances may not be such a bad thing, uh, considering where I think many of the people are going. It's very, it's going to be very difficult for the Liberal Party to win another federal election, certainly a majority. I think that's, uh, that's pretty clear at this point. But I, I take it that if this issue of abortion is the most important issue of this Prime Minister, uh, then he would have to reconcile that with many people out there who are uh, of the view that uh, while it is a controversial issue, they still have an opinion. They're entitled to that opinion. They can express that opinion. We call it freedom of expression. We have the Charter of Rights, which his father ushered in, which I was there in 1981, standing on the lawn, or rather in 82, in April of 82, when Her Majesty uh, signed that into into law. Jean Chrétien was there. Michael Petfield was there. My boss, Paul Cosgrove, was there. Uh, so I find it a little strange, a little odd, but I think it has a lot to do with the with the uh, uh, with the lack of sophistication and perhaps the, uh, if I could say it very politely and respectfully, I think he's intimidated by uh, individuals who have a much stronger opinion on things than he does. I'm pro-life. I'll admit it. I'm I'm I've always ha- I always have been, but that's also why I brought in the National Organ Donor Month uh, recognition. It's why I save the lives of Canadians abroad. It's why I oppose the death penalty. And, of course, at the end of the day, it has a lot to do uh, with why I believe it's important uh, to have uh, many sides of uh, this debate brought forward onto the floor of House of Commons where it belongs. So that's just something he doesn't want. It's autocratic, of course, as you quite rightly pointed out. But I think it speaks really to uh, the fragile nature uh, of uh, this prime minister and his inability to handle uh, those who object to his most deep-seated views, wherever they happen to be and wherever they happen to be. This is a, a big uh, bee in his bonnet, and I think there's a lot more to the story than, of course, uh, his uh, pronouncements and his exclusion of good, valid organizations across the country from the summer uh, work programs would uh, would uh, would betray. Yeah, Dan, I've known you for at least 25 years, probably longer. You have uh, you've never shied away from stating your opinions, and I'll never forget uh, when you came into the studio and uh, you uh, changed your mind on something that. We're not going to bring up now because it's not relevant any longer, but you changed your mind and you came into the studio and you said, I'm here to take my lumps. I've never forgotten that. That's a, that's a gutsy yeah. call on your part. So you have all my respect, my friend, and I look forward to speaking to you soon. Looking forward to it again. Have an enjoy this wonderful midsummer day. Absolutely. Thanks, Dan. Take Dan McTague, former Liberal Member of Parliament on The Roy Green Show. Visit Apple Podcasts or Google Play now and sign up for The Roy Green Show podcast 100% free. 100% Roy. Roy. We have the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada joining us on the program. Mr. Shear. thank you for taking the time. I'm glad you didn't duck. Many people would. This particular question, um, what's the issue as far as name recognition and recognizing you, the Canadian public recognizing you as the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada and quite potentially the next prime minister of the country? Are you not getting a fair shake from the national media? Well, uh, you know, I, I point out that uh, there certainly are a lot of uh, articles written and, and uh, clips on broadcast about uh, the Prime Minister's uh, jogging routine and what he may or may not be wearing while he's doing that. Uh, and uh, when I travel and, and have roundtable meetings or give speeches, there's usually uh, less coverage of, of, of those things. Uh, so I think part of it is uh, the dynamic of this particular Prime Minister and his the, the way the media has built him into a bit of an international uh, celebrity type of, uh, of person. Uh, but I also think, and I've been a student of politics for a long time and uh, been elected since 2004, I think it is a perennial challenge for any leader of the opposition. The, the prime minister makes news just by, uh, just by opening his mouth, just by making a statement, and the uh, media will cover him no matter where he goes. Uh, leader of the opposition, no matter which party, no matter which leader, 
uh, has to do a bit more, has to work a bit harder, has to uh, you know be, be uh, you know <laughs> do, do, do that much more to, to, to get noticed. So I think it's partly the the nature of the job and and the position, and I'm certainly doing everything I can to to to, to overcome those challenges. I've got a very ambitious tour schedule this summer, and uh, we're using new things like social media to to get clips of me saying things and uh, our message out in a in a, in a wide variety of, of ways. I'm going to be speaking tomorrow with the former CEO of NPR, National Public Radio in the United States, their version of the CBC, with the exception of the American taxpayer. It doesn't have to pay for their existence. Subscribers do. And he says, or he will tell us tomorrow, that there is a definite left wing, there is a definite liberal bias within mainstream media, and a Pew Research poll in the U.S. found that it's five to one. For every conservative-leaning member of the national media, there are five liberal leaning members of the national media for whatever that's worth. Now, the issues that you raise and the issues that that you talk about are issues that matter to Canadians and specifically the border. And you pointed out quite quite correctly that this has been going on for some period of time now. It started with the prime minister's ill-advised tweet. Now we have a situation where our border is continuously taken advantage of and we don't have just one person speaking for the border. We now have three from the federal government. So what's the issue with the border? What would you do with it? Well, as you point out, this has been going on for quite some time. When I was running for the leadership of the Conservative Party back in 2016 and, and 17, these were questions that were coming up uh, from the media and, and, and from our own uh, leadership race. So it's been going on for, for almost two years, if not more. And uh, the, the main issue is that, uh, as, you, as you pointed out, uh, the, the prime minister couldn't resist, uh, uh, couldn't help himself, tweeted out this this uh, this message that all are welcome or welcome to Canada, and people took him at his word. Uh, we now have a situation where uh, an aspect of the responsibility of this has been taken away from one minister and given to another, Bill Blair. Uh, however, we found out a committee this week that he actually doesn't have any responsibility, that the department doesn't uh, report to him, that the prime minister hasn't given him a mandate letter or told him what his options are or, or how to fix this. So uh, to me, this was purely uh, a symbolic move. It was all uh, style, no substance. This was just a, a communications exercise. Nothing is different today than it was before the, the cabinet shuffle. And as you point out now, we've got three people doing nothing on the file, whereas before uh, we just had uh, the one. So we've, we've, we've presented a range of options to the, the government as, as things they could explore. Uh, one of them is to apply the principle of the safe third country agreement along the entire border to recognize the fact, and I, I believe this is a very defensible fact, it's very reasonable, if someone is crossing in from upstate New York or North Dakota, uh, they are in a safe place. That they are not being uh, you know, uh, targeted or persecuted for their race and, and religion. They are not fleeing civil war when they come in from those countries. Uh, we know that people are taking advantage of us. We we know that uh, there are reports that people have specifically flown to the United States from uh, countries from around the world just to hop on a bus, come to the border, and cross in. Uh, we don't think that's right. We think that that uh, puts people who are in Real danger. Would you put a would you would you put a stop to that? Yeah, so, as I said, we we have we have we have called on the government to apply those principles that uh, border services can recognize fact as they do at border crossings. This is the mm-hmm. thing that that. Is, but if you're if you're the prime if you're the prime if you're the prime minister of Canada, do you stop this? Yeah, absolutely, and I believe that the way uh, to do that is to apply those principles. Right now, if someone comes in at an official border crossing and and tries uh, and makes a claim, they are told that because they are right currently coming from a safe country from the United States, then they must make that claim first in in the U.S. Right. That is uh, that is a principle that we apply to other countries. That is a principle that, that that is well recognized. That once you are in a safe country that has signed on to the same protocols and the same conventions that determine whether or not someone is a legitimate refugee based on the same criteria, yeah. that you that you should make those, you, you must make that claim there first. Uh, we think that's a legitimate position. It's reasonable, and it allows our immigration and refugee system to truly help the world's most. Yeah, Mr. Share, let me people right now. Let me get on to a couple of other issues because we only have a few minutes with you. The, the story that uh, is dominating uh, much of the, certainly the Ontario media, and is extending into the rest of the country, is uh, Premier Ford changing very quickly the dynamics, or has said the dynamics of the City Council of Toronto are going to change 
by the time the next um, municipal election rolls around in in three months' time, less than three months' time. What do you make of that? Are you uh, did you find that to be an appropriate way to deal with it, or have, do you have some issues, some questions, or is that something for the premier to decide that you was the as the if you were the prime minister, you would say hey, that's your concern, that's your bailiwick. I'm not getting involved. Yeah, look, uh, municipalities are, are created by acts of the provincial parliament. Uh, the provincial government sets things from election timing to number of councillors and, and uh, uh, things like that. That's not something that the federal government uh, would would suggest uh, would it be appropriate to micromanage uh, that. Uh, lots of different provinces handle everything from timing of elections to how elections are operated in a wide variety yeah. of ways. So um, I can assure you that a, a conservative government would partner with the city of Toronto and, uh, regardless of how many uh, councillors there may be to make sure that important projects that apply that that, that qualify for federal uh, funding would 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 proceed. So uh, that's 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 a commitment I can make. That regardless of how the political makeup is of Toronto or even at Queens Park, you know we will uh, we will uh, conservative government will always be a strong partner to tackle those very important urban issues. I want to ask you one more question, and this has to do with the carbon tax. With uh, Mr. Trudeau having said since the inception of his, or the beginning of his, his run as Prime Minister of Canada, he's going to have a pan-Canadian carbon tax, and any province that doesn't play along is going to have to pay the price because the federal government ultimately has the responsibility and the right to make these decisions. So Saskatchewan, your home province, is saying, no, no, you don't. We're going to court. Now Ontario has said we're signing on with Saskatchewan, and if Jason Kenney becomes the premier of Alberta, which many people expect is going to happen come next May the 31st or shortly before May the 31st. Mr. Kenny said he will join Saskatchewan and Ontario. You don't like the idea of the carbon tax. It, 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 where does this rank on your list of to-dos if you're elected the next prime minister of this country? Uh, job one. I, I, I've made the commitment before, and I'll make it again on your show right now. Uh, the very first piece of legislation that I will introduce uh, as, a, as Prime Minister and Conservative government will be uh, called the Act to Repeal the Carbon Tax Act. And it will uh, eliminate the carbon tax. It will uh, not, Im- you know, if it has been imposed on provinces against their will, we will, we will scrap that. Uh, and we'll we'll absolutely repeal it from a federal perspective. Uh, it's a very strong com- commitment of mine. Of mine, there's more and more evidence that, that that confirms what conservatives have been saying for for quite some time that a carbon tax is both ineffective in terms of reducing emissions and it just becomes another source of revenue for the government. So uh, that, that's our plan. It, the thing that's frustrating is that the Liberals have managed to convince a lot of people, including many in the media, that uh, if you are opposed to a carbon tax, then it means that you, in other words, the only way to do anything on the on the environment is to have a carbon tax. I reject that. There are a lot of things we can do to help reduce emissions and to clean up our rivers and lakes and uh, our, our natural uh, aspect of, of, of Canada without without a, a carbon tax. So that that's a very firm commitment, and uh, and. I, 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 I note that more and more Canadians, when given the chance to vote for a party that is opposed to a carbon tax, uh, votes for that party. So no. I take the fact that uh, Premier Ford ran on this uh, uh, very explicitly and was successful as an endorsement that, uh, at least in the people of Ontario, are opposed to the idea of a carbon tax. Well, Mr. Scherer, thank you for the, uh, for the time. Look, if, uh, if the protection of the environment depends on raising taxes, then that's a non-starter to begin with. And that means what you're really dealing with is a, is, a, is, a, is a political party and a government that is devoid of ideas. Thank you for the time. I hope you'll come back. Thank you. Really appreciate it. All the best. Andrew Scheer, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Want to hear more Roy Green? We've got you covered with the Roy Green Show podcast. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or Google Play. As the Canadian border issue continues to generate strong public view and confrontation between MPs. The question here today is, why exactly are people on the move now? Why are millions of people seeking out Western nations as their destinations? What are their plans? Do they contribute to the strength of these Western nations, or do they change the core value system of Western nations, values such as the ones Justin Trudeau insists Canada doesn't have, And much of the migration originates in countries with large Muslim populations. So the above questions 
start to take on a bit of a hue as some people will say, aha, this is, uh, this is racist, this is Islamophobic. No, it's not. These are all relevant questions. And Dr. Zudi Jasser joins us, founder of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy. He's the author of Battle for the Soul of Islam, former U.S. Navy lieutenant commander, cardiologist, and former president of the Arizona Medical Association. Zudi, good to talk to you again. Thank you for taking the time. Oh, it's great to be with you, Roy. Thanks for having me back. How significantly important is it for us to talk about this issue, about mass global migration? I know it's not all going to Western nations, but a significant percentage is, and it's changing the way that Western nations are governed from within. We had the situation in the U.K. where uh, thousands uh, of girls were being groomed for, for uh, rape and by, by sex gangs. And the police did nothing because they didn't want to be accused of being bigots and racists. So how important is it for this discussion to take place just from the very preliminary position of why is the migration taking place now and why are Western nations so significantly on the, on the, on the choice list? Well, I think, Roy, there is no uh, a greater, more important uh, discussion than what the West is going to do with this immigration crisis. And, and let's put it into context. The context is, you know, why are people emigrating from the Middle East and Muslim-majority countries of the OIC, which is the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, those 56 countries that are a voting bloc for theocracy at the UN? Because Islam right now as a religion, uh, a, little, a little over 1,438 years old, is going through a massive uh, upheaval. It is beginning to reject not only theocracy, but the dictatorships uh, among most of the Muslim-majority countries. And the natural place for most emigration to come to is the West. Uh, there is a, the, just like the radical Islamists divide the world into the land of Islam and the land of war, those of us who, like my family, my family escaped Syrian dictatorship of that same party of Assad in the 60s, and I turned out the way I did, a champion for freedom and democracy and a rejecter of political Islam and Islamic State ideology because I grew up in Wisconsin. I grew up in the United States. So at, on the one hand, the solution to what's happening in the need for Muslim reform is going to come from the West. On the other hand, if we allow anyone who wants to come here to come here, there's going to be three groups of people who immigrate here. One is, like my family, here for political reasons, for freedom, and they're going to be really, I think, the, the best resistance against the Islamists. But two, people who just come here for economic reasons and really have no interest in, in helping us ideologically or three actually enemies of the United States who reject democracy, reject secularism, and are, are pro-criminality, pro-Islamism, and theocrats, and are thus enemies. So until the West starts to have ideological filters for people we escape that escape and, and come here, until we begin to accept a, a, a minority and not anyone who comes here, we're going to actually be victims of our own suicide by allowing, just like in the Cold War, we didn't accept anyone. We rejected communist ideologues and others, and yet we still had many spies and others end up coming here, even though it was part of the immigration process to try to vet against them. If you look across the border at our country and you look at Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister, and you and I have talked about Mr. Trudeau and his unusual habits from time to time, Justin Trudeau has said nothing about the Toronto mass shooting on the Danforth um, a week ago, while he immediately condemned Canadians for the supposed cutting of the hijab of the 11-year-old girl on the way to school, also in Toronto. Within hours, we knew the girl had lied. Is, is Justin Trudeau um, conforming to a template of ineffective uh, Western leaders, or is he a case unto himself? Well, you know, I'll leave it to Canadians that know the Trudeaus better than I do, other than to tell you that uh, within the far left is this sort of red-green axis, which is where the, the socialists, the, the identity left, have worked very well with the collectivists of the theocrats as long as they're not living within theocratic countries. So, you know, the Trudeaus of the world love to, uh, in a bigoted way, tell Muslims, we'll accept the, the Wahhabis to run your uh, uh, mosques, we'll accept... Uh, the misogynists and others, because we don't care. You know, Trudeau goes to a mosque and goes to mosques and actually from the pulpit talks to the sisters upstairs behind a curtain, and I think is, is, is bigoted when he does that, and yet 
he uses them for the identity politics that is Canadian leftist politics, which is uh, socialist and otherwise. And they don't mind working with collectivists until they work, until they're subjected to the theocrats. And within the left here, you see them reject conservative religious beliefs uh, among Christian conservatives. And, and yet they, they do none of that application when it comes to Muslims. So unfortunately, the hypocrisy, the dishonesty, an actually bigoted approach to Arabs and Muslims, because to him it's just a tool. You know, he'll wear the uh, the LGBT socks when he walks in parades with Muslims, but then ignores the fact that in Iran and other countries, these very Muslims are throwing uh, gay rights activists off of cliffs and murdering them on a daily basis. It was very disturbing to again see people in the streets of Tehran and other cities in Iran um, protesting and battling for their freedom. It wasn't just about the economy. It had a lot to do with it, but it wasn't the only thing. And our prime minister and so many Western leaders were notable only by their absence and their, by, the, by their silence. And uh, these are exactly the kinds of people who want to have the, want their freedom that we pay lip service to. We say, oh, yeah, we're all, uh, we're all in line with you. We, we believe as you do, and you have the same premise for freedom as we do. And, but if you stand up against your murderous regime, well, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to comment. And that's really the sad reality of it. Hit up Apple Podcast or Google Play and subscribe to the Roy Green Show podcast. The Roy you want when you want it. Zudi, before I ask you about your your uh, appearance before the committee for M- Motion One Hundred and Three M One Hundred and Three in uh, in Parliament, the so-called Islamophobia motion. What's the premise of Battle for the Soul of Islam? Your your book. What's the premise there? The premise is basically that I, as an American, learned. Uh, having been growing up in a small community in Wisconsin and learning my faith just as a personal relationship with God, I learned that uh, the only way to defeat the global movement of Islamic State's theocratic ideology was really a Western American, uh, you know, school of thought to grow, an American form of a Western form of Islam where we have a new interpretation of Sharia. So that battle for the soul is, you know, if you look at our founding fathers in America, it was about the ability to reject the church's interference in their personal relationship with God. So therefore, it's not in the DNA of Islam for us to demand you know, governments that have Islamic law, but rather to be able to live in laboratories that allow us to sin or not sin, that allow us to interpret our faith in our own way. And that's where Islam is in its history right now, and that battle is what creates really just the symptoms of Al-Qaeda, of ISIS, of of the Muslim Brotherhood, of the Khomeinis in Iran. These are all symptoms of a disease, which is the need for Islam to, and that's the really the core battle. And, and unless we face that, we're going to continue this whack-a-mole program. Dr. Zudi Jasser's book is Battle for the Soul of Islam. Now, M103, Motion M103. Remind uh, remind us, please, of how you came to testify uh, before the Canadian Parliamentary Committee and what happened when you did. Yeah, you know, they, uh, and to their credit, uh, they brought different points of view, uh, but the author of that uh, M103 really had one agenda, which was uh, to continue to put the Canadian population on defense and say that anyone who uh, debated this issue or, or was critical of certain interpretations of Islam was thus a bigot, and, and that's why this motion came forth. I mean, reformers like myself, we don't even use terms like Islamophobia, and yet, uh, as much as we tried to uh, explain that M103 was simply about protecting Islamist uh, uh, establishment in, in Canada, uh, they kept saying, well, it was also about anti-Semitism, etc., and that was just a lie. So when I came to testify, uh, most of my time, now I've, I have been there in person, but the last time was through Skype, but most of my time was basically monopolized by lectures from the left uh, that uh, really ignored the substance of what I said, had nothing substantive to respond, but simply attacked the right as being bigoted and, and uh, very rudely prevented me from making any arguments as a Muslim who loves my faith. And this is exactly and what I explained to them was it's funny that this was in Canada. And yet this is exactly what happens in Saudi Arabia and Tehran. In, in Cairo, when Muslims speak up uh, about individual rights, universal human rights, we are shouted down, imprisoned, tortured, 
and prevented from speaking by the Islamists who think they own our community. And it was Muslim members of parliament who shouted you down or accused you of being, uh, what was the word they used? <laughs> an Islamophobe. An Islamophobe. Is another word for an anti-Muslim bigot, yeah. which is absurd. So here you are, and you're being called an Islamophobe by Canadian members of parliament who invited you to participate and share your thoughts, comments, and views of M103. And it was Ikra Khalid is the... Uh, is the is the member of parliament who brought forward M103 how how do people in in your experience how do people when you when you take away governments when you take away um, the uh, the veneer of uh, of um, political correctness do you find that people just get along okay if they're just left to their own devices without being instructed on what to say how to say it and when to say it well, I think, actually, let me just quick mention one thing. Uh, fast forward to what happened with M103 recently is the Canadian government now ultimately ended up funding to the tune of millions of dollars the work of these Islamist groups to camouflage the reality of the ideology. So that is a big problem that Canada needs to address, that that, that initial supposedly uh, uh, move to prevent discrimination was actually ended up being a funding mechanism for these Islamist groups. But... To answer your question, you know, I think ultimately the core for those who are non-Muslim, who care about their country, there is a swing which could be hyper-national, so we have to be careful. We see this in Europe and elsewhere. Some have blamed Trump and others. I'm not necessarily saying that's what the Trump movement's about. But if we go too far hyper-nationalist, we have to see why is that happening. At the end of the day... A nationalistic response is the only mechanism to come together as a society, left or right, and not obsessed about simply being against the other side of the aisle, but say, what is it that unites us? What's our social contract? And as an American, I'd say our social contract is that the American dream is that anyone has a possibility to succeed or fail, that we have opportunities economically, politically, free speech, and there are some core values of what it means to be American, what it means to be Canadian. And unless we can rise above political rancor instead of finding any way to exploit every issue, right. we're going to continue to have infiltration into our society that destroys us from within. Zudi, I thank you for the time, as always, and uh, much appreciate hearing your articulate and thoughtful reviews of the situation. And I'm sure we're all going to be, both going to be called names by the end of the day, but we know what the truth is. Thank you so much, always. Anytime. Thanks, Roy. Dr. Zudi Jasser. Thanks for listening. The Roy Green Show is available wherever you find podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you liked what you heard, tell a friend and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.